thank you everyone for coming to our first guest speaking event of uh, this new term. I'm here today with Claire Kelly and Claire is a poet and you are the marketing and production coordinator at New West Press here in Edmonton. Uh, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do Maybe I'll start with what I do. That's always easier. Yeah, at New West Press, I'm the marketing and production coordinator, which is quite a mouthful. Up until recently, I sort of had three roles, maybe four. I might add another in the middle of it. I made the schedule for guiding the books from manuscript, like final manuscript, which would get from the editor and author all the way through to book form. And then during that process, I do uh, we do cover design briefs. We do uh, write, write the copy for the back of the book. And that's usually both of those are very collaborative with the author. And I coordinate between the book designer, the office, and the um, author and editor. And I also coordinated with the printers. I say coordinated a lot. <laughs> and I did proofreading, copy editing as well. That's kind of one part of the job. And I'm sorry, part of that part of the job is I also um, sort of am in charge of the metadata. So that's what allows your book to be searchable online. So that's a lot of filling out spreadsheets, making sure the data appears on the websites correctly. So if there's a mistake, you have to put in tickets and start of stuff. The other part of the jobs was event planning for the events. And I ended up doing a lot of hosting like Brie does here. Thanks for having me, Brie. <laughs> and um, I was in charge of social media as well. Um, recently, uh, someone has taken the event planning and social media off my plate. As we get more and more books that are online, that's more and more metadata to take care of. And that's what I've been doing. And I've also been doing like hosting of events and stuff online too. As for myself, um, I grew up in Ajax, Ontario, just east of Toronto. That's how you can tell I'm from near there. I, I don't say it like I have a gun to my head. <laughs> Toronto. And I uh, went to York University for my undergrad. I took English and creative writing. So uh, I was part of a creative writing club on campus. And then um, I did my master's in creative writing at um, University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. And that's where I started working in publishing as well. Um, first, uh, there was a student-run magazine called QWERTY, and I, I was a reader for that. And then I was, one of my like TA ships or like RA ships was working at the Fiddlehead magazine, which is Canada's longest running literary magazine. And uh, I ended up being one of the poetry editors after that. And then also I ended up in the mailroom at Goose Lane Editions that I started in the mailroom and ended up uh, being on the poetry board there and doing proofreading for them and copy editing for poetry books for them as well. And uh, then I moved, but I never felt more like a Maritimer than leaving the Maritimes for work <laughs> and um, came to Alberta and ended up very happily working at New West Press where um, it's kind of a, like using the skills I'd learned at the other literary journals and putting them into practice for another press. Oh, and I write poetry. Sorry. And all that, <laughs> I published some books and chapbooks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can't forget about those. It sounds like you've been, you've been very involved with magazines and with um, publishing in general, even since university. So just nice 
to know like you've you've been where a lot of us are I think uh, yeah I joked that I had no other marketable skills like <laughs> I knew books 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 for my like that's my deal and like I'm glad I'm very lucky I'm very glad to be working in books still yeah well there you go if anybody out there listening to this has has questions if you yeah, are get a job in the mailroom and, and show interest in things so I wanted to ask you about some of your poetry. So you have a few different poetry chapbooks out. I know I have a copy of Another Final Girl, uh, which is a collection about like centers on horror. Um, and then there's your your moth. Is I'm am I saying that right? Ermoth. Ermoth. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. I think I'm forgetting. Oh no, it's okay. Uh, what were and the there's Maunder and um, one thing then another. <laughs> so that's four chapbooks that you have, and then. Oh. Two chapbooks and two books. Would you say that you started um, as a writer or as a reader first? I was always a reader. Like, I don't remember not being able to read. Like, I'm just one of those people. And the way I have ADHD and the way my ADHD manifested itself is I was able to hyper-focus on books, luckily. Because <laughs> I was a hyper-kid. I'm a hyper-adult getting me to sit still put a book in my hand sort of thing and if you read enough books I think you want to try to write one a lot of the time and like it was like in elementary school we had journals and stuff we had to write and that was always really fun and started writing stories and stuff but not I didn't know any authors I didn't know any writers so I didn't know that was a thing you could be (laughs) like when I was really really little um eventually I figured out someone must be making the stuff that made me sit still (laughs) but yeah in high school I wanted to write movies because I loved movie I love movies I wanted to make movies and then I realized I didn't want to deal with people that much (laughs) and then I was like well maybe I'll write them get someone else to film them and then I'll edit them and then that's like basically at that point you're just saying maybe I'll just be a writer (laughs) like I'll write a thing and then I'll edit it (laughs) and cut out the middleman of people (laughs) But yeah, and I wanted to write fiction before I wrote poetry, but what I'd actually sit down and write was poems. So sometimes what you end up doing is what you're doing, as opposed to what you want to do in a strange way. But yeah, reading, reading is important. You get the rhythms in your head with poems, especially like before I sit down and write, I'm usually I've read something and I'm getting like the beat, the beat. And that can help me formulate my erratic and jumpy thoughts into something a bit more, uh, cohesive and engaging hopefully no I think that's a really cool way of thinking about it to like hearing a beat and kind of going from there to create your your writing and your poetry because you're a reader and a poet and then you also work at a publishing house I was wondering if the experience of being a writer influences the way you like see your work as a publisher like how the two kind of intertwine because that's a really neat intersection to be at yeah um it makes me very um acquiescing as a writer to my publishers (laughs) like I've talked about other poets who are in in the same boat and it's like yeah because I know how hard they're working and I know what's going on behind the scenes to make this be a thing someone can buy and read or to check out from the library and read like there's a whole I am going to use a word, a phrase that I'm tired of hearing. There's a whole bunch of supply chains in action and a whole bunch of people need to do stuff to make those supply chains work. (laughs) And um, like, so that's a side as a writer, as a publisher, I know the anxiety. 
anxiety. I felt the anxiety of taking stuff that you've worked on by yourself and sending it out in the world without you. (laughs) I let the authors know that I've been there too. I totally get what they're feeling. And then I help guide them, try to, I try to help guide them through the process as simply as possible and try to let them be heard. Cause a lot of worries go away when you listen to an author who's, who's going through the process. And even if you're saying, no, we can't do what you want by saying, I've considered what you want. This is why we can't do it. And this is the logic to what I'm bringing to the table for this helps the processes work a lot smoother. I think it's nice to know as an author that there's somebody who kind of understands exactly what you're going through working on the other side. You know, you're not just kind of faceless entities who are deciding the fate of of your writing and your book. And yeah, absolutely. Like, I think everyone working in books likes books. Like no one (laughs) working in publishing is like, well, I'd rather be selling staplers. Like (laughs) it's an odd industry. Although there's, I have to have a recognition that if I'm, I'm passionate about my job, I haven't been with the writing project as long as the editor has even, or, or especially the author. Like the author has been working on this for years and I'm coming in for a year long period, like generally six months before, six months after, like six months for the production, six months for um, promoting the book. And then you end up doing a bit more promotion later on if things come up, but that's not the same as the author's passion about their own work. You know, (laughs) like they've been like, I had a poem in my first book that I'd been working on for 12 years. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I always try to keep that in the back of the mind. Like what their level of anxiety or worry or excitement is just a different, it's a different level than mine can be. Do you find like working at um, an independent publishing house within Edmonton, as opposed to like like one of the big five publishing houses, say that you get more of like a one-on-one kind of relationship with the authors that you that you publish or that you interact with. I do think for like my second publisher of my book is ECW. They're a big shop, but because po- poetry always ends up being like a bit to the side in publishing houses, I think where not that it's shoved to the side, but that it's it's a slightly different creature and it's dealt with like if it's a zoo, it's, it's, it's a, you have a special zookeeper taking care of it sort of thing um, to use a metaphor. And <laughs> yeah, so it's hard for me to know how the big shops work, to be honest, because um, I've only really worked for like Goose Lane's bigger than New West, but not like the big five, not like where there's an international, like <laughs> multinational of like, company who and you're a branch of the company and you're a branch of the branch of the company if you're in poetry like I've had authors say to us that we're more collaborative partially because we have to be we're such a small shop that I need the author to be on board with certain decisions for them to act as sort of an ambassador for their own book in a way that some publishers probably don't need as much. I'm not sure. To be honest, like we do, we do 10 books a year at, at New West. So five books over two seasons, like each season. So I'm dealing with five authors one-on-one a lot of the time. I don't know how, like, I literally don't know how the big places do it. I deal with the authors in a mo- more multifaceted way for sure, because I'll like do the production where I'm doing sales meetings for their books. I'm having marketing meetings with them. I'm hosting the events a lot I'm like 
so like they see me a lot more than even for ECW I saw a lot more people doing the same thing <laughs> for more books like yeah so I guess sorry I had to come to a I had to go on a roundabout trip for that one <laughs> no don't apologize I think that's great there's a reason my first book was called Maunder because <laughs> I can maunder <laughs> on <laughs> yeah would you say because you're like smaller or you've been described by authors as a little bit more collaborative that kind of independent publishing is more like a community-based thing? I know we are partially because of our mandate. Um, Because we have a Western, like we're writing, we're publishing Western Canadian authors or Western Canadian stories for Western Canadians. Like that's what we do. Um, and like, that's, uh, Manitoba on, even though my partner's from Winnipeg and he gets very annoyed that he's like, we're the center of the country. Winnipeg is the center of the country. So he's like, to be described as Western feels weird to him. Uh, he gets very annoyed when I, if you refer to Ontario as central Canada, too. Uh, I think it's might the other way. You end up knowing the hubs in Western Canada more. Um, and we have published a lot of Alberta-based authors um, and Edmonton-based authors. And like for a long time, Doug Barber was the president of a board and he was like a professor at U of A and he was, um, but he was the one who put like 500 bucks up to start the company. And finally, like it was only like eight years ago, he got the money back from the seventies. But like there's, yeah, you end up, we have author meetings in office if people are in town or um, and I know maybe Toronto-based publishers have that because they end up publishing a lot of Toronto-based people, if you uh, look at the statistics. Um, generally, especially for the Alberta and Edmonton-based authors, it feels like that. I think the mandate does help. And when you're dealing with very few authors a year, like the 10 authors a year, like they're a bigger part of your uh, sort of community pie. If you're dealing with 50 authors a year, that's... I don't, my brain doesn't contain 50 people very easily. <laughs> like, enough. Fair enough. I can only keep like 15 relationships going max. After that, it's like an animal crossing when you have to get rid of a villager. It's like, you <laughs> need to delete you. You mentioned something I thought was really interesting, which is the new S press mandate of Western Canadian authors, like for Western Canada. Have you noticed you being like an Eastern um, Canadian have you noticed that there are like Western Canadian isms? I've noticed waves of it. Um, I see a lot of books where people set it in a town and make up the town name. (laughs) I don't always see that somewhere else. Like they'll set it in a city, but they won't name the city. That's a thing I've noticed for a bit. Recently, um, and I don't think this is just Western Canada, like the trope I've noticed is there's a lot more um, disaster fiction. Um, if it's until like cli-fi, like the climate change fiction, and not everyone's going to write about climate change. A lot of people are sort of changing it to like, it's an earthquake. It's a, uh, hurricane, it's, which can be climate fiction, but it's something else that's slightly just off kilter that, um, is you're doing the climate change, climate crisis, I should say, climate crisis worries through that. And we're seeing a lot, like, we have like a lot of hurricane, a hurricane, um, earthquake books lately. Like they just, 
lot of, and that's a lot of Vancouver. A lot of Vancouver writers are playing through their worries and like just next door to climate fiction. <laughs> um, a lot of um, interest in landscape, like um, this comes in cover design and landscape can be a bit tricky. You're taking some, especially if you're doing mountains, like a lot of mountain books, the Rocky Mountains play a big part in Western Canada. Um, trying to contain the majesty of a mountain on a, a book sized, what's it called? What's a painter thing? Canvas? Canvas. On a book sized canvas is tricky. So that's, uh, that's where I've noticed that a lot. Like a um, lot of landscape, a lot of dust, a lot of dry, like if you're dealing with like the dry prairie and that was even noticeable way back in like, as for me in my house. Oh, I read it so long ago. There's a lot of dust. It's set in the thirties. So there's dust all over the place. Yeah, good old. But yeah, those are the ones I've noticed the most. Mm. That's interesting. That that takes center versus something in in Eastern Canada, which I also think is just kind of funny in a way because Rocky Mountains are like on on the west west side of Canada, like that you get in BC and Alberta. Because if you're from Saskatchewan or Manitoba, there's there's no mountains. It is flat. Oh, they're just. Oh yeah. When yeah. I landed in, in Winnipeg to visit my, my in-laws, I landed and I was just like, this is flat. This is the flattest place I've ever been. And, <laughs> yes. and Manitoba is flatter than Saskatchewan. It oh, just it has more trees. Mm -hmm. So it, they try, it, the trees try to trick you basically. Pretty much. Um, but when I went through um, a Bam that Banff to Jasper road, I can't think of the name of, I uh, I just kept saying, well, this is just showing off. It's very, very twisty. Very <laughs> like it was just so much. Like, it's one of the few times I've been, like, the idea of the sublime, like the thing your brain won't contain. Like, when I saw the mounds, I was like, my brain's not containing this. This is just too much mountain. <laughs> There's too much mountain everywhere. <laughs> I felt that in New York. When I went to New York, because... I'd been living in Fredericton, which had one escalator in the whole, <laughs> it's a capital city with one escalator. So I didn't use the vertical plane very much. When I went to New York, I was like, oh, buildings go way up. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was another sublime. So yeah, when you have that, you want to write about it. I think that makes a lot of sense. There's just something in endearing about it. And I do know authors who've come from Eastern Canada, places like um, Ontario and the Maritimes, who've just become very encapsulated with uh, Western Canada and with the mountains and not so much the endless grain fields of <laughs> the endless cornfield that is like the... the oh, I love those little, like driving from Manitoba to Alberta, the little ponds at the side of the road. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, I really like those. <laughs> And that might explain my small scale of thinking. I, I find those entirely endearing. Mm -hmm. um, and like, there's so much happening in them. There were so many different types of birds and like so many, like you could tell they were there because there was bugs there too. And like, yeah. there's just a whole ecosystem going on and we're just driving by. Like, yeah. yeah, it's definitely cool to think about for sure. So you have a book out with uh, EWC Press that's that's right ewc ecw ecw okay sorry yeah then another final girl collection was done by rally as ghost press which i believe is a smaller press yeah they're they're a chapbook press out of uh, vancouver and it's uh like mallory tater 
like Rahila is, uh, Rahila is the name of her grandmother. So that's kind of, yeah. yeah um, I didn't just submit to them because I was writing horror poems and they have ghosts in their name, but, and that would be a fun story. <laughs> but um, I had uh, Curtis LeBlanc uh, also does stuff for the press and um, he had been living in Edmonton. And when I ended up editing a chapbook of like emerging Edmonton poets, I published him and then um, met met Mallory later on. And like, yeah, so it was, again, we we're talking about community. You meet the people who you're interested in working with, not necessarily after you've written the project. Like sometimes it's like, I've read, okay, I've written something. Where does this go? Oh, these people were nice. I like them. Like I'll, I'll submit to them. <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah, chapbooks are an interesting thing. The way I describe chapbooks is that they're um, like an appetizer to an entree. Like a full-length collection is like an entree, and and the appetizer is the the chapbook. It's under it's usually under thirty pages, and then a full collection is usually over sixty. So yeah, it's just. But I like I like the size. I like under thirty pages of pages of poem. Like you get. That's how, like, my brain likes that for projects. Like, yeah. Uh, chapbooks need more respect. That's all I'm... Yeah, I think so. I like chapbooks. You just get, like, a little pinch, and sometimes it, it feels like a very niche topic, but I think diving into niche topics is part of the fun of, of poetry, for sure. The ECW Press, as you mentioned earlier, is a little bit... A little bit bigger but not like on a, on a huge grand scale well i think like they're one of the biggest who isn't owned by a big international like they're they publish a lot mm-hmm. they have like they do a lot of non-fiction they had a wrestling series for a while like where it's like wrestlers writing about stuff um they're the ones who did like the pulp culture essays there's one like about Calvin and Hobbes, like someone will write a whole bunch of essays about something and it's just a little snippet. Uh, Jen Sukpung Lee did um, one about My Own Private Idaho, which is a great movie. And uh, yeah, wrote about like canneries and stuff. Yeah, they do a lot of multifaceted things like they're, they're and they do um, a lot of audiobook. If we have audiobooks for our titles, a lot of them were made like ECW has bought the rights or ECW is handling the distribution and metadata for our, our audiobooks that we have the rights for. Like they've done a lot of work in knowing the people to get them made and getting them made and distributing them and treating them well, you know, like <laughs> it's not an odd press. It's just, they, it's, they're not small. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you, you clarified that because that leads in, well to my next question, which is that you have been published with a not small press and smaller presses. And have you noticed significant differences or are there like, what are your interpretations of like the pros and cons of each? And just how do you feel about kind of going, going for a big publisher or going for a small one? So my feeling of it is, is very often both are doing the same thing in the end. I would say bigger publishers sometimes have more reach, but they also have more books to take care of at once. 
like I've probably dealt with triple the employees at ECW than I dealt with at any of my the publishers just because there's if because they're dealing with so many more books their job descriptions are a lot narrower so like if you have different things you need done you end up talking to more people at the press um so it can be trickier as an author to navigate who you're supposed to be emailing for what but no one is mad you emailed they all know each other's roles if you email the person you think it is and it's not the person they forward the email to the person it's not they don't just like shut the door in your face like that's not what happens yeah the bigger the publisher the trickier it is to navigate who's supposed to help you with what or who you're supposed to give information to for different things but yeah I I had good luck with both but like some of it is geographical reach like I can never tell if it's the size of the place or the location of the place that has an impact for like how your book gets out into the world or how your book gets reviewed or uh, you get interviews um because Toronto sucks up a lot of oxygen in the publishing world I always wanted to start a, start a literary mag called hinterlands <laughs> and it's like for writers and publishers outside of Vancouver Toronto and Montreal <laughs> and be like let's see what's going on because it is it is more of a challenging to be an author not in those places even though I was I was born in Toronto I published with Toronto publishers but like for this reason <laughs> partially and also just I knew people who were working for them <laughs> like it's hard to know how much it's community and how much it's planning <laughs> but yeah the, there is bigger publishers I, I'm it's similar it's just similar but the mechanisms behind the scene work very different like I imagine but to the outside like to the author your book gets out in the world your book gets in stores I don't know if that's been very helpful I will <laughs> it's a hard question because I um every publisher works so differently from each other and there can be like elements that are the same but working for different publishers and publishing with different publishers it feels slightly different but the end result is the book gets out in the world so I like and I'm not I'm not a careerist with my writing I don't think like I don't refer to like branding I don't refer to my writing career <laughs> it just feels weird to me to do that I, I it feels for me personally it feels like I'm cheapening what I'm doing like if something's a passion it feels weird to slap a brand on it like it's cattle <laughs> um yeah so it's hard to my book gets out in the world I'm happy <laughs> yeah no that's a completely valid observation that at the end of the day it all kind of has the same result of a book gets out in the world like an author has a book out in the world has their work granted I've not like I have friends now who have been up for major awards and I've not really experienced that level of the publishing world and I'm okay with that <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's a thing where like it's, it might be the ADHD truthfully where I'm I have a lot of fun off in a corner by myself doing weird things I don't know how I would feel if I had that type of spotlight <laughs> like on me I might just freeze like a deer you know <laughs> I was going to ask then, because you just mentioned that Toronto takes up a lot of, of space. The, the kind of the big three cities are Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal. 
would you say that the stories that are coming out of those places that you can see are Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver centric, centered? And then would you say like publishing places in in Edmonton, like New S Press are more like Edmonton centered. And so you have kind of more of an influence within those smaller places? Well, I know like there's not like a, there's not that many publishers kicking around um, outside of those places. Like just the numbers are different. Yeah, we have a bigger influence than a publisher of our size in any of those cities. Just there's not that there's not that many. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know I don't know how to break down because Toronto does publish from other places too like so it's harder to break down what they're publishing it's easier to look at it if you look at the awards in different places like I forget who it was and I forget which prize I think it might have been the Giller where someone made a map I can't just go like that you guys can't see what I'm doing uh, made a map and put a pin where the office was and tracked where the winners of the prize were. And a statistically significantly large number of authors were within like five kilometer circle of the Giller office. And that is worrying. That's like, that's worrying, especially like we live next to the most influential media market in the world as like Canada is like, we are inundated with US stuff. And so I do sometimes worry, especially since awards are one way that books get noticed as book pages have shrunk, um, as um, media coverage has shrunk for books. I do worry about how we write to each other or write for each other if only certain places get the spotlight. As I was more worried about it when uh, Canada kept acknowledging just historical fiction for a long time. I just noticed like the trend was historical fiction. And I'm like, who's writing about the now for us? And I know the historical fiction very often writes about the present looking back at the past. But I'm like, when I was looking at the 90s and early 2000s, I'm like, well, who's going to write about my Tamagotchi? Like, um, who's going to like... And that's a particular, like, but who's going to write this experience of the now for people later to look back on? Do you consider newest, like, um, not contradiction, not competitor? I think it's another C word I'm looking for. To- My brain's just going cupcake, cupcake, cupcake. So that's <laughs> not helpful. Challenge? Yeah, yeah, you, I think that's a good one, Andy. Thank you. As newest press is kind of standing as a, as a challenge or in opposition of just having books and stories told from these kind of big city centers like um, with indie publishing in Edmonton you have essentially like the means to say like these stories from here are also worth telling often when I do my work like when I'm thinking of the books I'm not thinking of that like I don't want to put them more in the center, like the, the, the Toronto of it all more in the center than they already are. So I'm thinking about how excited I am about our books and the stories being told here without pivoting to the outside and looking in back at us. Other than when I'm doing sales meetings from people like elsewhere, uh, like often it's like we're um, a regional press, right? Like, so yeah, I, I mostly just think about 
the books as exciting for us, but it is, it is amazing the people who won't read the submissions page and will send us stuff that's not applicable to, to our mandate. Um, but I'm excited about our mandate. Like, it's not like I feel like we're cutting off parts of our body and not getting to use them. Like, I'm like, what I, what we have to work with is amazing. Like, that's what I mean. Like, I'm excited about, I guess, cause I write poetry. I like a limitation. I like a constraint. <laughs> if we had everything to work with, it would be, it would be too, it would be excess. <laughs> I like, I like the mandate. It's different when you read a book about where you're from, you know, like, or where you were from or where like you hope to be from eventually. Like it's, you can have, it's like the difference between having not your favorite soup and your favorite soup, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> your favorite soup, you're like, it fills you more in a way, even if you have the same amount of a different soup. I don't know what this metaphor is. <laughs> I like it. I think it's apt. <laughs> So then because you kind of have that experience of like what to work with, is there something, and I guess this is a question for our writers who may be interested in like publishing someday. Is there something that you personally and, or like you as a newest, like really kind of looks for or gravitates to in terms of writing or in terms of storytelling? So for me, I have chosen not to have a gatekeeping role. I have done it before. I've been on reading boards. I've been on, you know, I prefer to get the project and work through it. <laughs> you know, like someone else makes the decision to publish it. And I, um, I am excited though, as a reader, I'm a big fan of seeing mixing genres. I'm a big fan of seeing people writing a, about now or back to the nineties even. Cause as I said, like I felt like the, the historical fiction was so heavy back then that um, I want to still see writing from them because I feel like I didn't get it a lot. <laughs> um, and that may have been just my reader journey and took me away from it and what I was being taught at school and stuff like that. Yeah, I like mixing genres. I like to read about experiences that aren't about what I've lived. Uh, it's like, you know, a cisgendered white woman straight white women and who living in the suburbs grew up in the suburbs like that sort of thing I like to read about different experiences but uh, yeah I've chosen not to have a gatekeeping role um just because partially because I'm uncomfortable with that role and partially because I want to leave room for others <laughs> but the way it works at our press is we have a board and um, whatever gets submitted to us goes through a uh, first reader. And if the first reader likes it, they pass it up to the board. And three board members ha have to agree upon it. And one of them, one of the board members has to agree to be editor. So like there can be really good books that get to that last stage, but no one is like, I wanna edit this book. That's not a bad thing it's good to have people who are excited about your work, working on your work with you, <laughs> you know, like um, my first book got rejected by two or three publishers before it found the publisher it was supposed to be with, um, who were excited to be working on it. That's, it's part of the, it's part of the game, you know, not the game, that's not the right word, but like, it's part of the 
it's not always, it's kind of can be meandering. It's not always a direct shot for getting published. And I would rather it meander a bit and it finds the right place and people are excited then. Oh, the first person took it, but they're not that engaged with it. I don't know if I answered your question. No, I think that's a good answer. <laughs> no, I think that makes sense. There's- I forgot what the question was by the end of my talking. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's, there's no wrong answers here at all. This might be the last question that I have, at least until we go into the, into the Q of A. Um, but you mentioned that you really like uh, stories about different experiences and about like the mixing of genres. Have you come across a particular combination that just really worked for you or like really struck you? I am a horror junkie and work. I'm do editing my first book for the press. Like not my book, but like someone else's book. I'm in that like uh, I have a meeting tomorrow. The last probably the last one before we submit the final manuscript to me <laughs> to do the rest of. The- <laughs> so weird. That's not how it usually works. So like I like things that, and I love coming of age. So if, like this is a coming of age. Use not necessarily a horror book, but using horror tropes and horror imagery. And I'm going like, that's, I'm right there. But I, anything like urban fantasy that um, is engaging with reality very strongly, but not like, I'm not necessarily like, I don't make pictures in my head. This is, I have a brain thing. I'm one of those, I have mind blindness. I don't know. It's been talked a lot. It was only discovered in like a Fantasia, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have that. So um, I can proofread a book that is very um, landscape heavy. It doesn't appear in my head. Like things don't appear in my head. Uh, I can do my work with it, but if I'm reading for fun, I find some fantasy books very rely very heavily on world building. And that can be a bit tricky if you don't make pictures in your head and you can't see the world. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I um, like the sort of urban fantasy that's like a, very much attached to our world. I, I like those a lot. Um, I love noir. I love like, I like, I like a good crime mystery. But I also just like your uh, coming of age. Is, that was always my baby. Like, I love a coming of age story. I won't kick a coming of age book out of bed, basically. <laughs> you end up at these talks saying things and you're like I just said that <laughs> that's cool I'll end it with this one just like on a, on a fun kind of whimsical note if you could have a chance to edit or write whichever your perfect book or your perfect story what would it look like I have a novel idea and I have two sentences so far because it's been the pandemic and my, uh, I don't know about you guys, it's hard to do things, but I have this um, um, haunting house that makes you a hoarder an idea I'm working on. And the f- first, the first uh, two sentences are, the house was a real bargain, suspiciously so. And that's, I think it's easier for me to answer that question by what I'm obsessed with right now. I'm a person of, obsession so like I was obsessed with horror movies so like I wrote a whole bunch of poems but now I'm obs- I was over the summer like last year back into baseball hadn't watched baseball in 20 years practiced at the Sky Dome once 
full into baseball, got into knitting before. So like, yeah, writing projects. I can't answer like what my dream thing is. I can tell you what I'm obsessed with right now. <laughs> yeah. No, fair enough. I think that's valid. Also, I like the idea of a house that makes you a hoarder. I think I would read that. Totally. <laughs> All right. I'm going to turn things over to you in the audience. If you have a question um, for Claire, like please type it in. I can read it out. Okay. So before I ask this question, I have to say crew does not endorse the usage of illegal substances. And if you are going to use legal ones, please do so responsibly. But if you could get high with somebody or an artist dead or alive, who would it be? Ooh, I think Catherine Hepburn would be really fun. She definitely was pushy. <laughs> and I want to know. Yeah, I just don't know if she would. Catherine Hepburn. Oh, no, strike it. I'm going with old movies. That's what I'm thinking about. Jimmy Cagney would be fun. Jimmy Cagney would be really fun. Uh, Jimmy Cagney was uh, Warner Brothers 1930s crime movies. And he was Lil. He was really Lil. And I'm little. But he owned the, he owned the screen. So like when I go into a physical space and I'm trying to like bolster myself, I'm like just be Jimmy Cagney. Like so, I think mean yeah, I'm picking. And he was a good guy too. Like I've not heard anything bad about him. So uh, I'm going with Jimmy Cagney. Jimmy Cagney, all right, good choice. I like that. Oh yeah, um, Angels with Dirty Faces. Everyone, check that movie out. The ending could mean a couple of things, but like it's played ambiguously, and I love that. I love an ambiguous ending. It's always more fun than like super straightforward ending. All right. So Brianne in the chat says, my dream is to become a best-selling author, to get on the NYT bestseller list, to have movie adaptations of my work and to see it in big bookstores like Indigo or Chapters. Do you think that having your books published by a smaller company first is a good first step to take? Will it get your work seen, recognized and attract attention from bigger companies? sometimes we joke that smaller publishers in Canada this uh like you feel like the triple a baseball team that all the players like to go like you're the farm team sometimes I, I can feel like that I haven't managed to become a best-selling author so I don't know what my advice is worth in this regard um there's certain things you can do to make yourself more attractive to um large-scale publishers and be very active on social media and not in a way that alienates large swaths <laughs> of people and i don't mean that like yeah be passionate like i don't know if my twitter feed gets pretty politically angry sometimes <laughs> and i like again but i'm not that wouldn't turn me off but as an agent or you want to find an agent. That's, that's a big thing. Um, I have a friend who, um, got an agent. I have a couple friends who have done so, but like this friend submitted to 42 agents. And what happened was the assistant to one of the agents was getting a promotion and didn't have it yet, but contact and said, when I get my promotion, I would like you to be one of my authors. And that's like, as I said, it can be a, meandering path it's not always a direct shot getting an agent can be important to 
getting the work out there. The agents also know what to ask, what's acceptable to ask for for contracts. Um, we've had a couple of authors talk themselves out of contracts based on negotiating for themselves. Agents know where the line is sort of thing. Again, my experience is poetry. Like I, I'm not, no one's adapting my poems into a movie, unfortunately. Although um, Attack of the Killer Tupperware should be a movie. But there's, yeah, uh, agent, getting an agent can be a really great first step. Social media, saying not yes to things if you're burnt out. Like you can't use an opportunity properly if you don't have the time to do it. Going to readings, because you don't know, like the author coming in, you might end up having a conversation with them after and they tell their publisher, their agent about your project. And what I mean by talking, like a conversation isn't you go up and like, I have a book. <laughs> it's you're engaging with them as an individual. You mention you have a book and they say what it's about. And you say, oh, it's da da da. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get the word out there about it. Uh, and you can ask them for advice if they're big authors too. Um, they may not have time to do it. They may say, oh, I don't, give advice. They may even say if they're big enough, I don't read other people's projects because if I do, you could turn around and sue me and say, I stole your idea. That's the thing. But like there is, um, I know like Writers Guild of Alberta has a mentorship program where you can get paired with an author to edit some of your work. Never send out work that's unedited. Ever, ever, ever. And maybe you'll have a poem that came to you easy. I don't know, you're probably, if you're trying to be a best-selling author, you're probably not writing poems. But like, there's ways to get, there's some writing projects that come to you easier than others. Some need more editing than others. But you should always put the project away for a bit and come back to it. Like it doesn't go in the envelope until you're certain that you've done what you can with it. Talking about your writing project in an excited, excited way. Um, you see this a lot with poets where they go, yeah, I write poetry. No one wants to talk to you. <laughs> like, no one sells any other product by shrinking away. When I worked as a, a, a cashier at a Atlantic Superstore, I got people to write down names of poetry books because I talked to them excitedly about poetry because I chose to live as if everyone was excited about what I like, what I'm excited about. And that brings people in. So you want to think about bringing people in. Uh, that's my, but it's at a certain point, you want people to read your work. Going with a smaller publisher does get your work out there. It is proof someone liked your book, which can be engaging to a larger company. Um, similarly, publishing in lit mags. Um, it's very hard if you're a novelist to find out how to do that. Um, I find a lot of authors do well if they um, are also writing articles, they're also reviewing books, they're also um, making connections in different ways into the literary world. I hope that helps. <laughs> Again, take the advice of someone who's done that. <laughs> like I haven't done any of this. Like I don't write reviews. Um, like I'm not a best-selling author who's had movies made of my books. So like you want to learn from someone who's done, especially. Yeah, I think that's so funny about the poetry thing. Maybe that's just like the brand of like the brooding poet. Like you have to be dark and mysterious to do. Well, there was I read. I thought about it. I read this book. Uh, I forget what book it was in, but uh, it was about, and I forget the guy, but I think it was in Czechoslovakia. There was a guy living under a communist state 
and he had no control over like he had no ability to change the political structure he was living in so he decided to live as if he were free and make his decisions his day-to-day -day decisions as if he was living in a free country and i decided oh i'm gonna live as if people really care about poetry <laughs> and a lot of people have been taught poetry really badly <laughs> uh, they've been said okay here's this thing you don't understand tell me what it means and that's not how you engage with any other type of art. No one such, plays you a song and says, tell me, tell me what this symphony means. Tell me what this painting means. So like talking to people about experiencing poetry, not like automatically grasping at understanding. Like I've met people of genuine, get a genuine fear in their face when I say, oh, I write poetry or I'm a poet. And I'm like, I have, I have sympathy. I was also taught poetry very badly at times. It's not being like putting on, like putting out a placard and being a salesman. It's being excited. That's the only way I can think of it. Pretend you're a Labrador. Like you're excited. Excited. Support your own work. The, the marketing team behind your own work. Yeah. It's good advice. Because um, no one's going to be excited about your stuff before you are, right? Yeah. Unless you, your parents might be. I don't know. Some of your parents. If you're lucky. I'm lucky. My mom isn't very excited. <laughs> My mom, if I show her a piece of writing, she phones relatives in England and talks to them about it. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, I was just going to ask, uh, when you first contacted your agent, did you send your manuscript in whole or you just sent like the first chapter? Because I, I got concerns regarding the copyright issues. Poetry doesn't have agents. There's not enough of the pie to divvy up. <laughs> like <laughs> that's agents take a cut because they're doing work for you, hopefully. Um, so I would say you do what the agent asks. As far as I know, you do not pay an agent to read your stuff. Some of them ask for um, a certain amount of pages for 20 pages, like whatever it is, whatever their number. I would say for any publishing thing from Lint Magazines up, you read that submission page. The information is there. And if you're confused about something, email. The amount of time that us as a small publisher that goes to, I don't have to do it, <laughs> my boss, like responding to people who haven't read the submission page. We only publish Canadian authors. We only, we have Western Canadian focus. We don't publish pure sci-fi. We don't publish religious tech. Like the amount of times we get something that does not fit the parameters is huge, huge. I would say five to 10% of submissions just aren't. You read the submission page, they'll tell you, worrying about copyright, I would say, don't worry about it. <laughs> like, oh, Especially if like you've done your due diligence, looked into the agent, looked into that, like you can get a feeling from it. If you're like, this isn't true of everyone, but if I looked at an agent's list and I like, they usually list their authors. If I know someone, I will say, what's your experience been with so-and-so? And not asking them to put in a word for you, not, not that sort of thing, but like saying, you worked with this publisher, what was your experience working with that publisher? And I'll say, I'll give my opinion to them. <laughs> and I've been lucky that I've had good experiences with my publishers, but I'll also give the reason why I think I had good experiences with my publishers. You know, like, but yeah, you wanna, you wanna that submission page is very helpful. You can also 
use Reddit, use Twitter, use Google, Google the name of the agent, Google the name of the company. Like there is a thing where like, not necessarily an agent, but with a publisher, which is my, more my experience, you're getting into a relationship, like a professional relationship with that person that lasts like for the editing and book coming out year and a half to two years, but that's quite a bit of time. And if you end up hating the process, that's quite a bit of time to hate the process or something. Yeah, you ask around, um, Google, stuff like that. Yeah, I hope that helps. Thanks. Wondering, since I'm new to like looking into how to get published and all that stuff, I was just wondering how one goes about actually finding an agent. Like, how do you actually find one that works for you? So there's a couple ways to, to do that. I, and I'm guessing a bit at this, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Undergrad, uh, Professor Priscilla Uppel, very nice poet, who uh, she gave us a project at school about literary journals. How to find literary journals that you think would be suitable for your work or that your work would be suitable for, depending on how big your ego is. And mine apparently is, they have to be suitable to me. Uh, <laughs> and everyone in the class is given a journal to look into and you look at what the, like you get an issue and you read through it and find out what they published. Googling agents, Googling the genre you're working for plus agents. And then it's a bit of grunt work. Looking at your favorite authors who are writing things similar to you, seeing what agents they have, finding authors who are writing similar projects to you, who maybe aren't your favorite, but are doing similar work, finding out what agents they have. Uh, on Twitter, there'll be like, there's like a week where they take pitches and stuff like that. Uh, pitch wars, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's stuff like that. I've not Again, poetry, there's not enough pie to go around for that. So, but I've been thinking, I'm in the same boat as you because I'm starting to look at writing fiction. And I'm thinking like, how do I, if I write this great novel, if, big if, <laughs> and I get it out, like, how do I get it out in the world? It's a, it can be a bit more, more of a process, but look into writers you like. And that's probably the easiest way first writers you like and look into it, but also, yeah, the Googling and then just look at their submissions page and see what they want and do your due diligence beforehand too. But I've only done it like for lip mags. Yeah. All right. So I'll get to Andy's now. So Andy asks, how would someone get into indie publishing? Like what would make a strong resume or a cover letter? So indie publishers... You don't, some publishers require you to have an agent to submit to them. Indie publishers very often don't, like you can just submit to them, but some publishers, they require you to do like a marketing. This is how many people I have on my social media. These are similar books that I've done well. Um, this is how I'm engaged with the writing and book community. These are outlets I know who would do coverage of my book. I didn't do any of that. <laughs> Public, again, poetry is slightly a different thing. This is places I've been published in lit mags is also. A lit mag tells people that someone else had interest in publishing your work. But a strong, a letter, a strong letter, introduce yourself in the first paragraph, book description in the second paragraph, show that third paragraph why you chose that press to submit to, Thank you. I hope to hear from you. And here's my contact information. 
you also can kind of show you've read the submission page, which is always nice to see too. But that's kind of the cover letter that would go with it. Do you want to say the genre of the book, books, comp title, like comparison titles, but also books in their catalog, like in their, that they've published that made you interested in them? So yeah, that's kind of what I'd suggest for a cover letter. And then whatever, like some places only want a snippet, some places want the whole thing. I know we require the whole manuscript to be submitted to us. It's not if like, if there's a typo on the first page, we're gonna throw it out. But I know for my own books, because I've like been trained in, like I've done copy editing and proofreading. Like I sent them a very, I, it was clean. They could have sent it to the printers if they wanted, it, wanted to. Um, you don't want to have so many errors that it's hard to see the writing that's happening, for sure. To be, you want it to be well edited beforehand if you can. Yeah, yeah. But you don't have to do a book, like a clean, what I mean by a clean manuscript, it's in Word, it's in a readable font, it's double spaced, and you've proofread it. And like you've done editing and proofreading. I don't mean you've designed your own book cover. I don't mean you've laid it out like it's an actual book. Hyperlinks are very annoying. <laughs> don't hyperlink to each chapter to your table of contents because someone on the other end has to strip that all out. That's me. I would have to do it for my publisher. And it's very like a lot of the time I just retype out your table of contents and retype out each chapter like title and then copy and paste the body of the text. You're not the designer. Like I know at New West Press, like one of the few things we can control about the whole thing is that we like the writing and that we can make it have a pretty cover. <laughs> we may not be able to get reviewers. We may not be able to get festivals. We may not, but we can make the book look like something someone wants to pick up. And that's, it's always incredibly worrying to get a cover designed by an author because it makes us think that you're not going to be collaborative and collaboration is the thing for a lot of this you have to be very open to the process if you have a book cover in your head for what's going to be the book cover that's not how that works <laughs> that's just not how that works like like especially if you're going with an indie press it's not a matter of creating new art a lot of the time it's a matter of juxtaposing art that's already been created and having the designer manipulate that art into the cover that exists. I would say that's really important. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I apologize for being unclear, especially after all that fantastic information, but I, I was talking about working in indie publishing. Oh, working. So sorry um, about that. I, uh, yeah, I got a unicorn job. I have a full-time job in publishing with benefits, it's tricky. <laughs> so there's a few things you can do. Um, having an experience, like literary magazines are a good way to start. I know there's a few in town, but there's also ones outside of town where you can be readers for, or like see, like, are you looking for first readers to read the slush pile? Cause that's how I started. Uh, so I'm giving you my personal experience. Um, I never did unpaid internships. I uh, come from a working class family. Uh, the idea of doing, the idea of volunteering makes sense to me. The idea of doing an unpaid internship gets my, uh, gets my Irish up. Um, <laughs> 
and then um, be willing to do not your dream job at publishers. I started in the mailroom. I am not good at lugging things. I'm not a lugger. I did lugging. I did a lot of lugging for, for, for Goose Lane. And while doing that lugging, I expressed interest in other aspects of publishing. I will say I am very lucky. I um, don't have a publications degree. I don't have an editing degree. I um, learned on the job. But outside of Edmonton or like hinterlands, if I applied for my job in Toronto, I wouldn't get it because I don't have those degrees. So if you have the ability to get one of those degrees, it can be helpful. But you also have to do the other things, making connections. And um, I will say job applications come up a lot. Uh, if you um, trying to think of the places where I see them, the newsletters um, in Alberta, like Book Publishers Association of Alberta, BPAA. They have a newsletter, sign up for newsletters because they will have the job announcements. Writers Guild of Alberta will have job announcements. Edmonton Arts Council will have job announcements. Writers Union of Canada, League of Canadian Poets. If you end up going to a different province, find the whatever other province version of BPA or the Writers Guild. Like the reason I found out about the new West Press job, <laughs> sorry, it's a funny story. I got fired from a job at U of A. Um, I was an administrative assistant. I had never been an administrative assistant before. I was not trained. I didn't know how to do the job. I told them I didn't know how to do the job and I needed to be trained. I did not, uh, yeah, it was not a bait and switch situation. And I went to the Writers Guild of Alberta Christmas party and I had never been fired before. So I was in a bit of shock. And I was just making jokes at my own expense. <laughs> and an author in town said, have you seen the new West Press post? They're looking for, like, they're, you should apply. So don't be like me. Like, if you're looking for doing this, be more active. Don't be at a party making jokes like that's. But if you are at a party making jokes and someone gives you a hot tip, take advantage of the hot tip, you know? But yeah, going to events. The reason I got the job in the mailroom was because at, when I was at U University of New Brunswick, they had writers coming in and doing talks to us and like doing readings. And I went to them all. And a lot of my fellow students didn't. The professors saw that I was very engaged and very interested. Show interest, that's, that's a big thing, like for opportunities. Ask questions, but not just that, like, it's a hard thing because I wasn't asking questions to get opportunities. I was asking questions because I'm a nosy, curious person. I think if you're just doing it to get something, people will notice. But just try to be, again, be excited about things. It's going to be the thesis of the evening. Oh, resume cover letter. Sorry. Second half of the question. It's if you're applying for a job in any specific thing, it's not necessarily a one-to-one -one relationship. You're crafting a resume and cover letter to show that you have the skills and you may have practiced those skills in another avenue. Like if we're looking for someone who's doing event planning, you don't have to have a pl planned literary event. <laughs> like I can teach you, like I can, I have the emails. I can tell you those emails, but we need to know that you're comfortable asking people for stuff, <laughs> like, you know, like writing an email, asking for stuff. Like you find, you look at the job description, find ways in your resume and in your cover letter 
to show that you have done those skills or that you're a, you've done part of those skills and are really interested to learn the other facets. That's, that's the only advice I have. Like, there's two questions we have asked at job interviews. Have you organized literary reading? Have you been to, well, this is more than two questions. Have you been to a literary reading? Have you read any of our books? What do you know about us? What do you know about our books? We're asking, like, how interested are you in this industry? So, yeah, if you get to the point of job interview, you have to do some legwork before going in the room. That's all I got now. <laughs> no, it makes sense. Thank you. That's good advice. Brianne asks, you mentioned that it's hard to publish if you don't live in places such as Toronto. Is it still possible to get published by bigger companies based in these provinces if you live in a different province? It's absolutely possible. I have Toronto publishers. I lived in Fredericton. And Fredericton, as I said, one escalator. Uh, (laughs) And I lived here. There's two other things you kind of have to do, I think. Maybe more. We'll see how my list grows. One, you might have to explain the scene a bit more because they may not know what it is here. You can't just say, oh, like, I've been publishing Glass, you know, in Glass Buffalo. You would say, I've been publishing Glass Buffalo, comma, which is the literary magazine run for, you know, like University of Alberta students that has won these awards. Like, there's a way to best foot forward it, you know? You may have to define your terms a bit more um, locally for the local stuff. The other thing is, we, like, as a New West Press, our board isn't, like, I'm not in charge of what we publish. I would probably ask more questions. (laughs) But we don't require people to be on social media. Some presses absolutely do. If you're not in one of the main places, being on social media is kind of important because you want to prove you have a writing community. Like this is part of it. You could say I'm a part of the Edmonton Creative Writing Club. You know, there's ways to show that you're engaged in a community, which to me says, oh, if they're engaged in a community, there's community members who will buy their book. (laughs) <laughs> in a certain way, or they're engaged in their community. That shows me they're not doing this as a lark. This means something to them. And they're not, they're going to be more collaborative too. Like they're going to want something out of this and for their work, which is a good thing. And you want to make sure you're sending them your best stuff when you submit, because you've not met them. You've like, cause you live in a different place. You probably haven't met the person you're submitting to. You want to lead with your best foot forward sort of thing. My first book, it came out of my uh, creative writing thesis. And I would say two thirds of the poems by the time I submitted it for the publisher who took it were new poems. They weren't in my thesis. I was writing new stuff, realizing it was better, chucking out the old thing (laughs) and keeping the old thing, see if like I could gussy it up or engage with it in a different way to make something new out of it. It is very important then that you have your stuff sorted. It's always important. That's an always an important thing. But I like in my personal, like if I'm sending it to someone who I don't know, they don't know me. <laughs> Hope that helps. Would you say that's getting into, if you go say to a school where there is like a literary magazine, like Glass Buffalo or like the Fiddlehead or like the Capilano Review at UBC, like getting kind of involved in like volunteer yeah. work with student magazines? That's, that's a great thing. If only that you'll realize how they run. You can always tell when someone is like, it's six months, you haven't responded. And I'm like, 
like right now I'm not bugging publishers who have submitted to the stuff through until like after a year because I know things are like they're mostly volunteer run or student run it's not people's only priority it's not sometimes it's not their priority and understanding that and how much they get submitted to like it gives you more patience and understanding and like they're not there to serve you they're there to serve their readers like that's an important thing too like so yeah there's again a lot of this is like using opportunities it's hard if you're shy I am a loud introvert. <laughs> That's how I just kind of stop. So like I can go and not talk. I can hermit up. I can like I'm I'm very good at hermiting. I feel like I've been training my whole life for this pandemic. But at a certain point, you have to let people in for uh, when you're asking them to do a, a multi-year project with you or asking them to hire you or asking them like to collaboratively work with you on a lit magazine. You, at a certain point, you have to converse and, and and engage that's a bigger challenge for some people than others open mics go to open mics like i know at the olive readings i know how much i pressured Brie to read at the olive reading series i know pressured that sounds so mean but like i know that readers have read at the olive reading series at the open mic and then we've invited them back to be a feature reader and like the more people you are willing to let in that's how you create opportunities, you know? It's, again, as I said, like people can see through if you're just wanting to get something. <laughs> you want to be excited outside of the getting something, basically. Yeah, I wouldn't say pressure. I would say um, encouraged. And I finally yeah. did on the, on the last one. Before yeah, you read this great poem about Saskatchewan, right? Yeah, that, that eventually went on to get published in Funicular that became my first paid poetry publication. So like for all, and I'm not saying this like just to brag, but like for all of you, like do it. And, and open mics are very, like, I know I'm particularly poetry focused, but the biggest advice I would give for any reading, any type of writing, read it aloud. We have lizard brains. Like we have like our alligator brain that sees a computer screen and it's bright and shiny. And our alligator brain is saying, can I eat it? Will it eat me? <laughs> So like, it's not a way to edit your work very, very easily. So any way you can get your writing into your brain in a different way will allow you to edit better. Editing on paper, reading aloud. There are a lot of readers who do not engage with the text in a, um, like I don't make pictures in my head. The, the rhythm of writing is really important to me. And I can tell when an author hasn't read their work aloud. And I've tested this by at the UMB readings, asking every asking authors who I didn't think they had, like, it's part of your process reading aloud. It's important. That's an important thing. I will say, like, the more ways you can make your writing enter your brain for editing, like, do it. And I just want to say thank you all for asking such great questions and for um, being here. I know a lot of you are you know, like you're in school, a lot of you, and that's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard normally, let alone hard during like pandemic times. Like uh, I only had to do school in the before times. So yeah, I, um, I really appreciate it. Um, but I had a question about like certain authors will use different pen names for their work. Like obviously my full name is Brianne Harrison, but if I were to write a book, I would rather go by my first name, my middle name. So I was wondering like, 
how that we, would go down. We had that. Um, Jacqueline Dawn, um, one of our authors, did first name, middle name. So we decide to publish you. We send out our author questionnaire. We have, we need your legal name because we have to do government stuff. <laughs> then we say pen name. I have a, like Claire Kelly, like I have a girl reporter name. I was thinking about using a pen name if I ever published horror. Or I have it picked out. It would be my middle name, my mom's maiden name. Like I have it in my head. If you have a pen name, that does mean you'll have to have a social media presence under that pen name. Stuff like that. Alongside building it under your name, be building social media presence, especially since you want, you know, to get with a big publisher. So yeah, it's a tricky, I'm not sure how you go about doing that. Um, I've known some authors who have used multiple pen names, like Craig Davidson um, wrote his horror, uh, Nick Cutter. Yeah, like there's different reasons to do it. Brianna Harrison is a solid name. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you can remember it. I mean, I didn't do it because, um, I don't know, I like my weird girl reporter, like my Lois Lane girl reporter name. It's solid. Yeah, I can... I can speak a little bit to that. Like granted, I'm not a professional. Don't take anything I say as a professional, but I write under a pen name, which is my first and middle name. Like I write under Brie Taylor. That's all of my publications you can find under Brie Taylor. My Twitter, Instagram, TikTok handles are all like- It took me so long to realize it was you asking me to do this. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh damn! I thought I I signed I signed with my with my actual. No, I I realized eventually uh, it was my my it was my like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the stuff. Right. It does add some complications. Yeah, I would also say because I googled it first and I maybe made a mistake because my last name is not unique, but it it's not like ungoogleable. Like if you pull up like Bree Micklejohn, you'll get, I think like my elementary school chess team will like come up. But that can be useful. Yes. If you try to Google Claire Kelly. <laughs> yeah, you'll get a lot. <laughs> Very oodles of us. Oodles and oodles. Yeah. I Googled Brie Taylor and Brie Taylor is also the name of a country singer. Um, who is Claire Kelly, 1950s actress. Yeah. Like, oh it's... yeah. The funniest one. This is like the best thing that's ever happened to me was one of our anthology authors from Little Space put that book onto Goodreads. And so all of our authors would have like a Goodreads page. And I was like, oh, that's super cool. I like have an author page on, on Goodreads. And I looked and I looked at Brie Taylor and there are other Brie Taylor yeah. writers out there. One of them is like a, like a paperback uh, romance writer. And so I had like, it was like books by Brie Taylor, Liminal Space, Cocky Grass or romance novel. And it was the best thing ever. And I had to go to Goodreads and be like, actually, don't give me credit for this. I don't want to take credit for oh, this. Oh, that happened to me a lot. Mm-hmm. I had all this stuff, including stuff like Claire's Climax, Kelly's Quickies number 23 was one of the titles that came up by Kelly Adams. It, whenever I Google myself, like... I'm a, I Google myself whenever I look my stuff up on Goodreads to see what y'all are saying about me. Yeah. You find different. Yeah. We're less, we never ask an author to change their name. We do ask authors to change the titles of their books. So uh, be pre- emotionally prepared for that. Um, it might not happen, 
we've asked authors to do it when there's 40 other books with that title and we think you're going to end up on the second page of the search results we'll ask you to change your title stuff like that um if your title is 16 words long i'm not talking about title subtitle if your title is that's tricky for advertisements. That's tricky for people remembering it so they can search for it in places. <laughs> like there was a question earlier about like what working for a press, how has it affected your writing and vice versa? It's made me less precious about. I was always, I love how when someone's like, oh, you should cut this line. I'm always like, yes, let's cut it. <laughs> like I like cutting things. I'm less, I'm more like, Oh yeah, that doesn't make, like I do regret the title of my second full length collection because it has an M dash in it and no one's going to use an M dash while Googling it. <laughs> like, so you want to be, think about how busy your average person is. You want your book title to be remembered by that person so they can look it up. But we would never ask an author to change their name, but it does lead to, we very often have to like fix the Goodreads page for our authors because it's, picked up other books based on the names <laughs> it is something you can do those are just like the caveats of of doing it potentially yeah it's not a that big a deal like i could see it if you have a famous parent like i can i get why joe hill is joe hill and not joe king well first of all joe king sounds like an adjective i mean an, a, a verb that's a verb <laughs> or an adjective what was that news story? Like LeBron James's son plays basketball, but his name is LeBron James Jr. Um, and like, can't, can't see. George Foreman naming all his kids George Foreman, including the girls. Wait, what? Is that a thing? Yep. I did not know about that. <laughs> all right. Um, that's, um, if your job's to be punched in the head for a living, I guess you, you make some decisions that are a bit wacky. What are y'all reading? Oh, that's a good one. I'll give the floor to y'all. Go for it. I know you're like like in school, so you might just be reading school stuff, but like, I, <laughs> I won't judge. Yesterday, I spent one hour reading The Girl from the Sea, which is a graphic novel by Mo uh, Molly Knox Ostertag. And I got through it in one hour because it was so good. Nice. And I just like could not put it down. I chose to write my feminism essay on it because it's about supernatural creatures. But, oh my goodness, I would definitely recommend that Is it one. about silkies or mermaids? Yeah, silkies. Okay. Oh, it was just amazing. That sounds interesting. I have my comic book. I, I, I have like 300 X-Men comics. So like graphic novels and comic books are my, uh, that was my obsession. And then horror films and knitting. And yeah, for sure. I mainly, I was mainly drawn to it because it was an LGBT story. Like it was about two women. And yeah, I just was like, I definitely need to read this. <laughs> 10 out of 10 recommend that one. Nice. Thank you for sharing. I'll have to add that to my list now. Uh, Andy, I see you have your hand up as well. Um, I just recently discovered like old pulp sci-fi. I've never read any of them before. I've heard Are about you them. in Heinlein? Are you in Heinlein territory? Like Philip K. Dick? Oh, Philip K. Dick. He, a yeah. uh, very interesting writer, mm -hmm. took a lot of speed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wrote some books where he was paid by the word so you have to like the that... one i read was very it was very small it was called the the man who japed and so i i found it in one of those little libraries you see outside and like specifically just the use of the word japed which i had only known from a video game like that like caught my attention 
But yeah, many of them describe present day situations, which I guess isn't really a hot I, I would recommend for you uh, <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut's, Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut's, is it The Songs of the Sirens? He's got a book with sirens in the title. That's like his, and, and Slaughterhouse-Five, like is a really great. I like Slaughterhouse-Five, yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think looking to some of uh, like, that he's got one that's more sci-fi than that even. Okay, yeah, I'll yeah. check that out for sure, yeah. Heinlein is always fun. I, w- I was reading Heinlein when I was 12 for fun. My How do you spell Heinlein? H-E-I-N-L-E-I-N, I will say. Okay. Bit of a fascist. Definitely a misogynist. Um, but he's got one about a female, like, space courier. It's called Friday. And he was obsessed with, like, polyamory and stuff like that because if on different planets or in the future monogamy wouldn't make much sense for the different like colonies that were existing and stuff so it's a bit of a weird but he did stranger in a strange land that's probably his most famous one um and oh there's the one where they fight insects and they made a movie out of it starship troopers I was going to say, I realized the reason why I think I st- I've stayed away from those pulp novels is just because of how extreme the covers always are. Like, they're always very, like, erotic. and kind of. T- <laughs> but, like, there's funny, you can find literary books. So there's a mm-hmm. book by Joyce Carol Oates, another person who's proven themselves untrustworthy, uh, called Solstice. And I have a cover that's meant for romance readers. But it's not that type of, like it's a it's a literary novel about two women who get in an obsessive friendship. But the cover, they look like they're from a 1980, like they look like they're from Dynasty, like 1980s soap opera on the cover. And it does not match the descriptions of the characters or anything. I find that funny how how like thinking about how books are marketed to different groups using these tropes. Yeah. And they don't know, like Songs of the Sirens, I think, has a, a very extreme cover too that's like, oh weird. <laughs> like I remember going into like We Book In with a with a friend and seeing the like pulp sci-fi and like andy mentioned like they're very like striking and sometimes like er- erotic undertones for sure and i think i like picked up one and turned to my friend i'm like no wonder <laughs> nerds were getting bullied in the 70s when your book covers look like this <laughs> but i guess that was just like sign of the times but there was also like some of the x-men comics i have have oh really <laughs> Interesting. Oh, there was uh, in the '90s. There was a particular designer, like right when the cartoon was out, because that was my entree into the X Men world. And uh, right when the cartoons came out, they were let's just say the waist to hip ratio and the wa- waist to breast ratio quite extreme. <laughs> like, and clothes that don't look structurally sound, like they're just painted on. No. Have you heard recently of the um, the Hawkeye? test for comics where you yeah i've seen the thing where they pose the male characters as if they're female characters yeah and if it and if it doesn't make sense then consider yeah redrawing your female characters yeah for sure i've seen some of the images where they insert hawkeye into the female poses and some of them are very funny to look at for sure there was also a woman who did like the skeletal structures of the different comic book drawings like and the women's spines that do this curve like this and it's like oh that's not that's not upsetting. not structurally sound just a yeah. little tired terrifying i'll get into just a, a fun last question which is what is your 
favorite horror movie and or do you have any horror recommendations? I have so many horror recommendations. Um, The one I've been talking about a lot is this one from the 70s called Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Um, 70s horror, like the slasher flicks really changed the horror genre. I like the slasher flicks, um, especially the first Halloween, and I love the first Chucky. But 70s movies very often are paced like novels. But Let's Scare Jessica to Death is about two, like about a couple and their male friend who moved to... uh, we'll say a heterosexual couple and their male friend who moved to the country from New York City because the wife of the couple has had a mental breakdown and is getting better, but the city life is not good for her mental health. And they move to the country and weird stuff stops, starts happening. And it's, kind of, it's very much from this perspective of the wife. So you as the audience member find yourself asking, is she well? Is she seeing reality as it is? Or is reality this messed up? And you kind of live in that liminal space of you trusting the character in certain ways, but also not sure if she's basically an unreliable narrator. And yeah, it's got a really great ending. And yeah, it's it's got one scene where she's in a room and things are coming to a head and it's just her in a room and you're seeing her just freaking out and there's a mirror and you can only see her face through the mirror. It's a very like fragile scene you're questioning what you've seen through her eyes, basically, throughout the whole movie. It's, it's, it's really good. If you're not into older movies, it's a really good French horror called Raw. The main character is going to a veterinary school, and she's been a vegetarian her whole life, and her sister's already at the school, and things start to go awry. Yeah, I don't want to tell you how it goes awry, but it's just a really good female director as well. I'm saying these ones just because I think we know a lot of the horror tropes. These are ones that play or disregard the tropes. So uh, yeah, they're, they're worth thinking about. That one's got a lot of graphic gore. Raw has a lot of graphic gore, but I find it, some movies are worth the gore because what they're talking about, like their subtexts are really interesting. I will add them to my list. I've started to get into horror as well. But what, so- what horror do you like? I'll give a recommendation yeah. for, to you for hosting the event. Oh, I'll give you a recommendation based on one you like. I Okay, I recently watched The Thing over okay, Halloween, okay. and I, I really like that. I was not prepped for bad things happening to dogs, but then I just thought those are some good dog actors. They're doing great. Um, so that's John Carpenter. John Carpenter has a trilogy that that's a part of. Okay. And it's called the uh, the Armageddon, the Apocalypse or Armageddon or something trilogy. Hmm. And those, all of them are interesting. That one's the most successful. Like that one's the most fully rendered. But I think there's like the Prince of Darkness, I think is. And then there's another one that's names escaping me. But look into the John Carpenter, how he thinks about the end of the world is a very interesting thing to think about. And there's a horror movie rental place in town called The Lobby. It's on White Ave at 108 and White. It's in the basement of a daycare center. I wonder what those kids think about when they're having naps. Highly, I got two movies out this week from there to watch. So Thank you. Well, we're coming to an end here. It's just at six o'clock. So I just want to say thank you again, Claire, so much for coming and sharing your wisdom and your experiences with us. And yeah, thanks for having me.